Welcome back. We are continuing our uh, talk on icons. Last week, we mentioned a couple things of why we're doing this, which is the main reason we're getting four new icons for the sanctuary written by Jonathan Edwards. And in order to welcome them and uh, to have them at our church, we wanted to do some more teaching about the nature of icons and also about the the people that we're getting, which is St. Paul, St. Peter, St. Michael, the Archangel, and St. Elizabeth, the new martyr. So last week, we, we took a really general view at, really it was just more at symbols rather than specifically icons. And we looked at the symbols and images of both the East and the Western church. We looked at architecture, a little bit of music, scripture, sculpture, etc. All of those things are iconographic in a general sense, meaning that they convey a deeper reality through symbolism. But this week, we're gonna look very specifically at icons like the ones in our church. Those belong, and you can tell this, right, to a very different and specific form. So from now on, when I use the word icons, I am talking about the icons that, that we have, whose form comes directly from icons during the very first years of the church. In fact, there's good reason to believe that the first icon was written by the apostles, um, and St. Luke is, in general, the one who that's attributed to. And it's this form that was then continued throughout the, mostly in the Eastern Church, though there were some in the West as well. So to begin talking about icons, there's so many different places that we can start. And there's so many different facets of this that we can look at icons from. But I wanna start kind of really, really large and ask the question, how should we think of an icon when we view it in front of us? And I've often heard that we should view an icon as a window like a window that you look through. And today I wanna, rather than do the metaphor of a window, I think it's much more helpful for us to view icons as a mirror, in fact. So here's why. If we take the metaphor that icons are like a window, um, you know, we, we look through a translucent window, the glass, and we then stare at the object itself. The subject is right beat through the window and that's what we're staring at when we look through the window. Icons though, are not a direct look at the subject itself. It's much better understood as a mirror. Here's what I mean. We look at the image in the mirror. Um, when you look in the mirror, you look at yourself, or you can look at a mirror from the side and see something else. And you're noting that the image in front of you in the mirror is not the subject itself, it's a reflection, right? And because it is a reflection and not the subject, the image or representation of the subject is naturally distorted. And I don't mean yeah, let me be careful here. I don't mean distorted in a, in a bad way that it's, you know, really worse or morally distorted or anything. I mean that it's distorted in the sense that when you look in a mirror, it has to be in a two-dimensional image now. It's no longer three-dimensional. 
the left is now the right, the right is the left, it's been reversed, those sort of things. That is the image that we have. It's all the image that we have. Take 1 Corinthians in chapter 13, verse 12, that passage that says that now we know in part, for we see in a glass darkly. As if we're looking at a glass, we're looking at an image, and we can't quite see exactly the subject itself. We can only see the reflection of it. But the imperfection, the distortion that's there, does not need to uh, get us down. We don't need to be too depressed by this, don't worry. Uh, it doesn't need to be restrictive or stop any knowledge of the subject. It doesn't mean that we don't get to know the subject at all. In fact, it's only until we acknowledge the fact that we are looking at a reflection, at the mirror and not the subject itself, that we can finally start to learn about the subject through the mirror. What does this have to do with our icons? Let, let me give you some examples. Take our icon of all saints, uh, for example. And at this point, I wanna um, kind of share my screen here so that you guys can actually see the icon uh, while I'm talking. So something's gonna pop up now, don't worry. It should say icons and idols, do you all see that? Good. Uh, actually, let's take this icon as well. Sorry, this is Christ Pantocrator, also written by Jonathan Edwards. Take that icon, uh, for example. Here is Jesus, um, and this is Jesus at the end of the ages as um, ruling on his uh, throne. It might seem silly to say this at first, but it's really important to first acknowledge that the icon that you are seeing is not Jesus himself, right? This is not the second person of the Trinity sitting on the right hand of the Father as we speak, still in human form, but or in a human body. That's not him. This is the reflection of him. You see, this is important because it's not that we're looking at this icon as a window seeing the true subject. No, this image is a mirror reflection of him. Once you then acknowledge that, that this is not seeing the true subject of Christ, but this is seeing the mere image of him, the mere reflection, then you can start learning from the mere reflection. This seems almost paradoxical, maybe, but I think that it's precisely because of that paradox, precisely because of that tension, that you can start learning from an icon. Let me then explain it in a different way. If that's a little bit too out there, confusing, let's try another way. Um, and this is the way that the church fathers started to begin to explain icons. And uh, they started to explain it actually utilizing uh, Platonic philosophy, uh, especially Plato's um, uses of how we use words and how we use images. Of course, it's not that they're just taking it because they didn't have anything else and they're like, oh shoot, how are we gonna explain this? Where's Plato? No, they, they baptized this. They, they took it and they transfigured it into Christian theology. So what do I mean by that? Plato kind of explains words and images um, in, in this way. Let's talk about a, a circle. Um, there, there's three different ways I can talk about a circle. I can use the word, 
circle. And in each of your minds, uh, a different image of a circle is coming up. I can also then define the circle. That thing which has everywhere equal distance between its extremities and its center. That's not my definition, by the way. Uh, but that defines a circle. That's another way I can do it through uh, words and defining it. I then can also uh, draw an image of a circle. And here is uh, the image of the circle. But all three of these are not exact. They're not exactly a circle. Do you see what I mean? All three of these actually are in a similar way a reflection of what I am talking about as a circle. So how is that? Well, a word, what I just said, the word circle will conjure up something completely different in one of your minds than in something else's. It's not this exact form that we all kind of share, but it's something around it. Um, the definition, for example, it only describes that which is. It's not it. It's just kind of talking around it, right? And then the image of the circle, um, and this is mathematically, I've been worked, talked through this many times that no one can draw a perfect circle. You can't exactly do it. Even a computer, it's very, very difficult to get an exact circle. So do we throw our hands up and say, well, let's just not talk about anything. Let's not uh, have any meaning at all. No, 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 slow down, right? There is a positive function to all of this. There's a positive function then, we're gonna focus on the image because we're talking about icons here. There is a positive function of the image because the image reflects the real presence of a circle. It is not the exact circle. It might be an imperfect circle. I might even have tried to draw that myself. It would have been horrible. And you still would have known that it is a circle. So I find that it's very helpful that when we talk about these images or we talk about icons, we use the metaphor of reflection. And this is why it's so key here. Let me uh, read to you a quote by Father Maximus Constas, who has this wonderful book called The Art of Seeing, which is a collection of his essays on iconography and kind of describing icons. This is what uh, he says. Any allegedly perfect image can in fact be only an idol, which will not bring us closer to the truth, but rather drag us down more deeply into the cave of illusions. To claim to utter the perfect analogy, to behold the absolute image, and so to have direct knowledge of the ideal is to commit an act of idolatry. That is, it's to mistake the image for what it represents. Now, I hope you see where I'm going with this, right? If an image or an icon is only a reflection of the subject, that's a good thing. Because if we were to say, if we were to say that this icon is Jesus Christ himself, do you see the problem there? I mean, we could form a great line at the church and charge a lot of money and say, this is Jesus Christ himself. He's come back in our icon. But obviously that would be nonsense because that's not what an icon is. An icon is a reflection. It is not the perfect image. 
once you start claiming that we have, we are holding on to, we have the image, the absolute, we have knowledge of the ideal, you're wandering in very dangerous territory. Let's put it that way. It's heresy. Yeah, we can just say it. So it's kind of strange that some people then claim that icons are idols, right? It's when, in fact, icons actually protect us from the very impulse of idolatry. Now, can you turn an icon into idolatry? Of course you could, right? Uh, you could claim that that icon is Jesus Christ himself. He's come down now into an image as the icon, and you could uh, adore that icon in an inappropriate way. Yes, you can. You can do that with anything, by the way. But icons, uh, in the way that they're written, in the way that they're created, are actually a control against idolatry. Our task, especially now that we're getting more and more icons, is to learn how to perceive that. What do I mean? It's how to perceive how the icon is a reflection of the subject. And we must be really careful here because understanding an icon is not something that you get to impose upon the icon. You don't get to make the meaning of the icon. It's not like ordinary images. And this is hard for us because we are in a culture that is saturated in images. I was reading one uh, thing recently that said that we see on average 1,500 images a day. And now that we all are on Zoom all day, it must be more than that, right? 1,500 images a day. You know, it'd be a good imaginative exercise sometimes to think back in your mind to a time when there was not much advertisement, when there is no, um, not much technology, and think about a, a life that is actually restricted from images, and then you walk into a church, or you walk into, you know, the downtown of London or, or Paris, or you walk into a museum that you've never been into. Do that. It's a wonderful exercise of your imagination to kind of then go back and try to figure out how powerful these are. And actually, I mean, maybe that's the wrong thing to say, because I find that when people visit our church, when I still walk into the church, the first thing I see are the icons, and they are still very striking. In fact, given that we do see so many images, it's incredible that the icons still stand out. There's something, I don't know, there's something so dissimilar about them. And yet, when you, when you look at them, just give it a little bit of time, I don't, maybe this is just me, but I, I do feel like within the icon, there is a reality of something beyond. So, I, you know, I'm filled with all these images, and yet, the icon still feels really different. It's not just another image is what, what I'm saying. Most of the images that we see today, I mean, a lot of them are just advertisements, right? And a lot of these advertisements obviously are pointing us to uh, images of false perfection. 
uh, they're trying to give you uh, reasons or products for what is the good, the true and the beautiful. Um, you know, we see this all over the place. Here's the good family, right? Isn't that wonderful? Wow, they're so wonderful. Now that they have the shoes, their family is complete. Uh, I didn't even make this up. I didn't even have to edit this. I mean, look at that. What are you worshiping? This is amazing. I mean, McDonald's gets it. They, they understand. Or Coca-Cola. I mean, why seek, why go through all this trouble of going to church and, you know, giving up meat on Fridays when you can just be happy when you open a can of Coke? That's it. It's amazing, right? So here's the images that we're inundated all the time with. And of course, oh, and then I'm, I'm not even putting up because it's almost too obvious. What about all the images of the ideal body, right? Or the ideal of happiness, of fitting to a form, fitting to a, a form that is not even realistic today. This is, this is the amazing thing that all these images that they use of models, uh, especially of women, but also of men, are all Photoshopped to a point that no one even can realistically match that. So here you truly are seeing images that are putting forth the end, putting forth the good, and it's unattainable, absolutely unattainable. All of this is leading now to images of false perfection. And I hope you see that this is why icons are so important for us now. In a world that is inundated with images, I think rather than making icons obsolete or making them um, just part of all of our images, actually now, it is making icons even more important. The icon seeks to disrupt our habituated ways of seeing images. That's true. And what do I mean by this? While we can look at all these images that point us to, I don't know, some sort of consumerism or market value or some sort of distorted vision of the good life, an icon points us to true reality, true reality. Advertisements all make the mistake of making the physical world, uh, the flesh, the end. They make the purpose of our lives just these material things. They, they make uh, these material things the very essence of happiness. And that's, of course, what St. Maximus pointed out, or Father Maximus pointed out earlier. That's the definition of an idol, to say that this is the ideal. This is the perfect. We have it now. It's just opening a can of Coke. That's it. Let me read one more quote. Oh, I wasn't going to do that yet. Okay, we're going with it now. Let me contrast that with this vision of happiness. Obviously, the center of the icon is Jesus Christ, who draws your vision in. The end is clear, front and center, radiating. 
Everything else in this icon is seen in his light. Our end, according to this icon, is God. In this icon, we see God. Here he is, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, standing right on Mount Tabor. But we recognize something else incredible from this icon. His divinity, which is portrayed, you can see it here, his divinity is portrayed through that wonderful radiance kind of breaking out behind him. His divinity is portrayed, but that doesn't destroy the mountain. It doesn't destroy all the people around him. It doesn't destroy the physical universe. In fact, what we also see here is we also see his humanity divinized. His humanity now is lifted up, not abandoned, and it is transfigured. This is an image then, this is um, an icon that is teaching us something. This is dogmatic, by the way. And the icon is teaching us in through this image, the great patristic notion that God became man so that man might become God. Notice that Christ's humanity is not destroyed in this icon. It's lifted up and transfigured. So now the end is, let me kind of compare and contrast this, or contrast this to the advertisements. In the advertisements, the end is just something physical. And what some people might expect from religion is that, well, then it's the opposite. Then the end has to be just be spiritual. But the icon of the transfiguration shows us how our material world can and will be realized in the eschaton, all of it lifted up and transfigured. It points to a time when all material creation lives in unity with the spiritual. This is what Paul talks about, a spiritual body. This is it right here in front of you. I love this icon because uh, in some ways, it's an icon of iconography, if you want to put it that way, right? Because an icon is using the physical, using an image. And it's an image that has been painted with uh, egg yolk, with minerals of the earth, with glue from animals, with wood from a, a tree. And all of it has come together and now it has been transfigured into this object that now reflects the glory of God. It's been transfigured. All the material world has been transfigured now into an icon. And the transfiguration icon shows that so clearly. One of the passages that I keep coming back to when thinking about icons is Psalm 36, the last verse, but the first half of this shows this really well as too. Psalm 36, starting in verse seven, how excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. Oh, that's a great image. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. And that's that phrase, in thy light, we shall see light. If an icon is a reflection 
it is mediating through that reflection divine light to us. And so as we place ourselves before an icon, uh, there are a few important things that we're doing. First, we are acknowledging then that there is a being beyond ourselves. First, you're acknowledging, of course, that there's an object outside of yourself. And then you're acknowledging that there is a being, a subject that is outside yourself. But the icon is also then making you, making you acknowledge that God is your end. You have to acknowledge that when looking at an icon. And then finally, the icon is making you acknowledge that your end is a transfiguration, a lifting up of all of your life, material, corporal, right, and spiritual, to be transfigured into divinity. That's what we're doing when we come before an icon. We are seeing the reflection of divine light so that we don't impose ourselves on that divine light, but in that light, we see light and we are changed. That's all I have for tonight. <laughs> I didn't, should have had a better conclusion there. Uh, I've received some great questions this week, really wonderful questions uh, that are gonna be addressed in next week and the week after that. So Sarah and Jackie and Aaron, who asked really good questions, those are coming, uh, or the answers of those are coming. Don't worry, it just didn't get into tonight's presentation. If anyone else has questions now, I would love to answer them. So let me open it up now and see what you guys have. I have a question, Father yeah. John. Yeah, can you go back to the transfiguration? Thank you. Um, he, you, you said he's standing on Mount Tabor. Well, they look like steps, first of all, he's standing on, and I notice that they're splitting in two. Can you tell me what that's all about? No. <laughs> no, it's a good observation. I don't know either. Yeah, so a couple other things I will tell you about this icon, though, and then I'll get to the, um, to the Mount Tabor part as well. I should have mentioned this earlier, right? So what's really interesting here are the apostles, I think, right? Uh, I, I still do truly believe that this is the Christian view of happiness, in a sense. Uh, but the apostles don't look very happy, do they? <laughs> uh, in fact, they are absolutely uh, stunned. Um, you could say uh, perhaps even fearful, even though uh, that can go different ways. They are definitely confused. They do not feel bold enough uh, to face and to stand up towards Christ, right? Uh, I think you see Peter there, though, on the left pointing towards Christ, which is quite, quite wonderful. Um, this is, I think, is a really helpful notion of what I was talking about, that the icon, uh, you don't get to um, determine what the icon says in a sense. The icon is there, like prayer, to change you, uh, to help point your desires, help point your prayers to Christ. 
And this is what uh, the apostles are facing at this point. They are facing um, the transcendent in a moment that they did not expect, and they fall down. They have a life ahead of them, a life of commitment and of, of conversion in order to prepare themselves to come back to this. And that is our life as well, of uh, coming to this vision con consistently through conversion and through repentance in order to come back to this. Um, the mountain here is very stylized, isn't it? It's not realistic. Uh, it looks like steps. Um, there could be some images there, which I just don't know analogies or metaphors back to um, Jacob's uh, ladder, but I don't think so. One of the things that we're gonna talk about next week is how icons are actually rooted within and have to be rooted in, within a historical reality. But because that historical reality is now transfigured, all of these images are stylized. We do not see, uh, for example, uh, Mount Tabor in the way that which Mount Tabor actually looks today in a photograph. What we're seeing is the transfigured notion of Mount Tabor. So too with all of the saints. Um, in all of the saints, when we, when we view the icons of saints, we're not seeing the saint as they were uh, the year before their death, as you could view a photograph. You're seeing the transfigured state of the saint. And that works with all materiality. So all of the world now is portrayed slightly different because of that. We'll get into that more next week, um, talking about the particularity of icons. Um, but I'm sorry I can't answer you about whether Mount Tabor is split. Uh, Father. Yes. The, uh, the saints that are down on, on the bottom there reclining, that's Peter, James, and John. Yes, that's correct. And up on the top is that, that's Moses. And Elijah. Elijah. Elijah's on the right-hand side, I'm guessing. Yeah, they represent the law and the prophets. Yeah. Yep, very good. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, what are the others? Kevin Hart. Uh, well, the others, I, uh, so I didn't look at this very carefully before and try to see if I could read any of the names and I can't recognize them. Um, there are two images actually of Christ ascending the mountain and then Christ descending the mountain, I think. Um, it's, it's actually a narrative built within the icon. Um, right. It's the same figures, right? It's the three apostles with Jesus and then him coming down. And I think on the right, uh, you kind of see him almost motioning them to be silent, yeah. uh, which is what he does. And um, Kevin Hart uh, added that perhaps the split in Mount Tabor is representative of the rock that Moses split and the water came out. Wow. Uh, that, that was Shana. Said that. that was um, Sushana, not me. Yeah, that was Sushana. It could be. The fact, though, that we need to be very careful of reading uh, into icons too much metaphor, actually. Um, in the sense of trying to read the transfiguration icon to be an answer to um, some sort of theme or something like that. But what, a, what about as the Holy Spirit gives us interpretation for ourselves as he does when we read the scripture? To me, a split in the rock means when you're confronted with Jesus, like the apostles at his feet, they have to make a decision, you know, which kingdom they're going to be in. 
the goats versus the sheep. You know, there's a split. Uh, yeah, that, that's not in this icon. I would say a couple of things to that. First off, uh, we're never reading the scripture individually, right? Uh, we are always reading the scripture within the tradition of the church. So you are never reading the scripture and just listening to what the Holy Spirit tells you personally. Uh, you're always reading scripture within um, the context of the community that you live, the body that you live. And of course, the Holy Spirit will um, use Holy Scriptures to convict you, to um, teach you, things like that. But you're, you are not interpreting the Scriptures in the sense of determining the meaning of them. So too in an icon. Uh, we need to be much more receptive to just the icon itself, the plain matter in front of us. Um, when I was growing up and started learning about icons when I was much, much younger, I'm still young now, but when I was much younger, uh, I always thought, I, I don't know the code. I don't know all the symbols of the colors and, the, and the, the, the Greek letters. And I don't know, I can't figure out the, the symbols. And what I've come to realize is that it's not a code. Uh, there are actually very simple things that you can learn about the colors and about what the, you know, each figure is holding. But the point of the icon is for you to be in front of it and to be, um, uh, for you to experience it in a sense uh, uh, like that. So I would, yeah, that's how I would answer that. Uh, and then finally, Arlen, Arlen wrote a really great point. Ancient mirrors were pretty poor by today's standards, weren't they? When he said darkly, he was describing a real experience. That is true, but we have found uh, uh, actually some very good mirrors. They did uh, have glass, especially if you're in the, um, by the first century, they had glass that was quite reflective and put into mirrors beautifully. Um, and you can see those at museums still today and still see your reflection in them. Um, so that's good. And then Arlen wrote, I think of Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock by God so that he would not be destroyed by seeing God. And the apostles' reaction seems akin to that. Now, Arlen, I do think that is here. It, this is the apostles facing transcendent glory. Not the glory of the Father by which they would obviously die. This is the glory of the Son who is now in incarnate form in the flesh, but still look at that behind him. It's truly divine, but now he is incarnate. He is in the flesh. Any other questions? These are great. Well, I can read you what it says in this book about that particular icon in terms of, of of the uh, three apostles oh. at the bottom. Yeah, um, wonderful. Um, says the attitudes of the apostles vary, but starting with the uh, 11th century, St. Peter will always be represented kneeling, which he is in this one, supported on his left hand and raising his right hand to protect himself from the light. St. John, always in the center, falls, turning his back to the light. St. James flees before the light or falls backwards. Um, and then I read something about the Moses. Moses uh, in our icon is holding a book. Generally, it's the tables of the Decalogue. And Isaiah is an old man with long hair. <laughs> you know, there's a lot more in it, but that's from this book. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And that's, um, you know, what's wonderful too is that then, you know, 
we know that because this is just how it was always written and you can find you know various icons and they all have the same form basically which is great um and i think then you know we always need to be careful then of our interpretation of those facts those are all just facts of what's in front of us um and then yeah and then you just need to be careful of how we interpret them father sean yes ken yeah uh I have a, there's another uh, icon of the transfiguration that's on the cover of a book that I have here. Can I share my screen or is that, is that legit or not? I don't, I don't need to. I have it here. Actually right now. Uh, if you told me the book, I could look it up. It's the, it's Rowan Williams, The Dwelling of the Light. And it, it, it it's interesting because uh, in that, in the icon that he has on the cover of that, the whole mountain is split. It's not just split in two, but the, the, the surface of the mountain uh, is entirely fragmented. It's just- so that, That's a convention then. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, the splitting, it's not just in two, it's, and uh, yeah, the whole thing is, 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 is divided up into, it looks like the whole mountain is falling apart. Well, maybe that's because things of earth made of dust can't contain the glory of God. Yeah. Well, let's, let's be careful, though, with that, because uh, the icons actually are the fact of showing that the glory of God can be contained uh, on earth. And that is first and foremost through Jesus Christ. Yeah. And since we are dust. Correct, but not in his transfigured. He only transfigured in front of the three disciples. True, but what's great here in this icon uh, is that the transfigured form of Jesus Christ uh, does not destroy the disciples, the apostles, right? Uh, no, they, I know. They through this. <laughs> and it doesn't destroy all of humanity either, and it doesn't destroy Christ's humanity. And actually, this is pointing us to not that we are dust in the sense that all will be obliterated and then we'll be raised again into like some totally different thing. It's that our dust will be taken and formed into new bodies that are still material and still wonderfully part of this world, but now resurrected and transfigured. So the transfiguration teaches us that the world is not destroyed by divinity. In fact, your process of your life right now is to become divine. Uh, slowly and surely, right? As we become what Paul says, in Christ. We are in Christ through our baptism and we grow in Christ. That's what we mean by divinity uh, not destroying us. We actually now are joining part in that. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yes. Um, let's see, we have another one by Kevin. I think this is Kevin and not Sashana in the chat. I'm perplexed by Paul's image of the mirror. We do see ourselves in a mirror and don't see anything beyond. I think he must have had in mind a speculates, a Roman mica window that partially reflected anyone who looked through it, or a specularis, sorry, a specularis. Um, yeah, it could be. Kevin, I do, I mean, they did have mirrors um, back then. 
So it, I don't think it necessarily has to be uh, a window, right? Or maybe I'm missing uh, your point here. He uses one of the two Greek words for mirror. There's no doubt of it. He yeah. means mirror. But I think he must have been confused. Because if you look in a mirror, you see what is yourself or behind you. That he's using the image eschatologically to see what is ahead of us, what is beyond us. So I think he, tend, he must have had in mind specularis, which he probably was trying to translate back into, into Koine Greek, is the best I can think of on Paul's behalf. Yeah, Which, I do see what you mean about the eschatological. blurry image of what is, as it were, in the garden beyond when you're looking out through the mirror. Mm -hmm. And you also see your own reflection superimposed upon it because it's very fine mica. It's not one of those e excellent Egyptian mirrors or, any, or glass. <laughs> Who knows what Paul might have been fond of? We don't know that or what we're, you know. Right. But, well, um, yeah. He, he might have he might have been going through various window shops. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, uh, Kevin. I don't know how to answer that fully. Um, I do see what you mean about the eschatological of looking kind of forward, and there does seem to be the, the metaphor he's using is not just looking back and looking at yourself, but the sense of looking um, right. towards. Uh, hey, Father. Yeah. There's another, there's another uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, toward the end of that, uh, I don't have, you can look at the Greek on this, he, he talks first of all about, about Moses uh, coming out and having to put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel wouldn't see the glory depart, but then... Uh, but then he's. But then he says this. This is very interesting. Uh, now the this is the very end of it. Now the Lord uh, is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And then the last eighteen. But but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, uh, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit. I mean, the idea is that we are beholding this in a, I mean, the word glass there, I'm assuming it's the word mirror in, in the Greek. I know for a fact that the image, I mean, the idea is that we with open faces beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image because we're beholding the icon of Christ. That's what that verse means. Yeah. But I don't know what the word for me. I know that the word for image there is icon, but I'm not sure about the word mirror. The idea is that we are what we behold. We become what we become what we behold and, and take in. Hmm. That's what it looks like. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Thank you. What, what, what was that verse? 18. Of... 318 is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It's, an it's, a, it's a fascinating verse. The narrative is, is, is Moses, 
veil over his face, then the children of Israel have this veil over their face so that they can't really behold who the Lord of glory is. Right. And that veil is there, but the veil will be removed. Uh, uh, and and uh, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. I mean, I think it, it probably speaks to the, to the kind of devotion uh, that, that you're talking about. And I think that's also the, the, process, the process of theosis as well. Yeah. He, he, he uses the, the notion of image in his preaching. He said, how can you Galatians be so quickly turned away when I've presented to you as, as, a, as a very icon in my preaching, the Lord of glory crucified? So he used it, but he's talking about a verbal image there. Anyway, well, that was interesting. Tied into it. Yeah. And um, Paul and Audrey uh, asked, one of them asked, in the Pantocrator icon, are the words of scripture chosen by the icon writer or fixed by tradition and therefore the same? Um, it, uh, usually the words that are given on certain icons, whether, you know, like a gospel book or on a scroll, uh, are, they are fixed by tradition. Um, there are different traditions sometimes within different, um, uh, different jurisdictions. So in a Russian Orthodox uh, icon, um, you might find something slightly different than in a Ukrainian Orthodox or a Greek Orthodox. However, it's still fixed by tradition, and there is very, very general kind of... Um, uh, things to follow there. Maybe one more question, and then uh, we'll probably be out of time. I don't want to go too late tonight. Arlen asks, would you say that an icon is a way God mediates his glory to us so that we can safely gaze on him and be transfigured or sanctified? rather than being destroyed by seeing him face to face? That's a good question. Um, and one that I probably wasn't um, very exact on uh, in what I was saying. Uh, icons are only possible because of the incarnation, right? Because God has now chosen to become flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the word has now become the image the icon of the invisible God. And that's the verse that we looked at last week. So the glory uh, that we are seeing um, within an icon or the, the image that we are meditating upon is a reflection of the incarnate glory of our Lord. No one was destroyed by seeing Jesus. Here's what's even more remarkable. Uh, also kind of coming back from the old, or hinting upon the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah, Jesus was not beautiful to look at. Uh, he was not uh, the Greek ideal of a man. <laughs> he was very normal. Um, and 
that is the type of glory that the icon is working within. Uh, it is paradoxical in a, in a way that now faced with um, a painting in front of us, we are in some ways participating in the divine glory, though we are not beholding it directly, we are seeing a reflection of it. That might be a more precise way to put it. Um, and I hope that helps.